Hello, this is John Sloat and Rory McLeod. You're listening to HAE Radio, a show exploring the realities of life with HAE in Canada. In today's episode, we will be asking members of the Canadian HAE community, what does HAE mean to you? Uh, One word that best describes my experience with HAE, unpredictable. Isolating. Disappointing. Exhausting. Yes, frustrating. I think the word that I would use to describe it would be worrisome. Throughout the episode, we will be investigating the patient's perspective through the personal accounts of some of our members and contextualized by one of HAE Canada's medical advisors. Join us as we try to paint a picture of the effect that HAE has on a patient's quality of life. HAE was first described by Henrik Quigke in 1882. Six years later, William Osler noted that these type of attacks reoccurred consistently through family histories. Osler was the first to identify HAE as a hereditary angioneurotic edema. In 1913, it was confirmed that the condition is a dominant genetic trait. Half a century later, scientists proved that HAE is linked to a C1 inhibitor deficiency. C1 inhibitor is a protein that is essential in regulating swelling. Finally, in 1998, bradykinin, a peptide that affects the dilation of blood vessels, is discovered to be the primary factor in swelling. So, HAE, as the, as the letters um, stand for, hereditary angioedema. That's the voice of Dr. Gina Lequesta. Dr. Lequesta is an allergist and immunologist based in Halifax, specializing in HAE. We're not experts, so we called her up to get a physician's take on HAE and how it relates to a patient's quality of life. Now back to Dr. Lequesta. Hereditary um, means that it's, it's a condition which runs in families, but it doesn't always have to run in families. 25% of the time, it will just come spontaneously um, with no family history at all. And angioedema means swelling. And what I tell my patients, it's crazy swelling. So swelling where um, the area can be quite deformed. You wouldn't think that that area of the body could swell like that, but then everything goes back to normal. There are particular places where people get swelling, typically lips, um, eyes, hands, feet, sometimes the genital area, but really it can occur anywhere in the body. Um, Typically, it can last anywhere from 24 to 72 hours, and every swelling episode is different. Um, You can have swelling in your bowels as well, so that a lot of people complain of abdominal pain and crampiness, and that's how that swelling manifests. Um, The worrisome part, of course, is if if somebody gets swelling in their throat area, making it difficult to swallow and, most importantly, difficult to breathe, and therefore there is potential for for life-threatening reactions with this type of thing. Before we continue with our discussion, let's take a moment to talk about what quality of life means. Quality of life is an umbrella term used to define a state of well-being. It is used by many different disciplines and therefore has many different definitions. In our context, we are talking about health-related quality of life. That is, an individual's perception of what a quality life should be. This can relate to many different aspects of an individual's day-to-day life, including physical and mental health. For example, I could define my quality of life based on my perceived level of happiness, comfort, and security on a day-to-day basis. Now let's go back to Dr. LaQuesta and get her view on how HAE could affect a patient's quality of life. 
I think it can hugely affect somebody's quality of life. Unfortunately, for the most part, it's an unpredictable condition, meaning a lot of these swellings can completely come out of the blue. Some patients can identify triggers, uh, such as stress, being um, having infections, being overtired or exhausted. Um, certainly, if people are to have certain procedures like dental procedures or being scoped down your throat, that can also bring on um, um, swelling. But certainly, just everyday emotional uh, stressors, which everybody is susceptible to, can bring on the swelling. And certainly, to have swelling in such visible areas, to have painful swelling. Um, can certainly affect somebody's daily life and, and interfere with school, uh, their work, their, their ability to socialize. So it really can have an impact on quality of life. Would you like to share any tips that would help a HAE patient improve their quality of life? I, I think certainly being educated about their condition, trying to identify what their triggers are and, and avoiding that. Um, I know with our local patient group, we've had... Um, we've had specialists come in and talk about stress management, you know, being sure to live as healthy a lifestyle as possible to avoid infections or unnecessary stressors is ideal, but certainly just owning the condition, being well-educated, being aware of the treatments, um, making others around you uh, know about the condition as well. I think that improves the quality of life a lot um, so that they can know how to treat themselves accordingly. Could you elaborate on ways that patients can manage their HAE? Yeah, it, it's certainly different for everybody. We, we talk about individualized treatment because everybody's condition is treatment. I said how it runs in families, but the way a mom's disease will present is very different from how her children may present. Some people may not need much treatment at all. They might not have swelling that frequently just being aware of, of, of their condition and knowing what to do in emergency situations um, would be their management strategy, whereas others who have swelling quite often, anywhere from, you know, weekly to monthly, they may need something more on a daily or prophylactic basis to control their disease. As Dr. LaQuesta was saying, every patient's treatment strategy is unique because every patient has a unique relationship with HAE. After the break, we will hear from some of our members describing their personal experience with HAE. Okay, well, my name is Morgan. I am 21 years old. I'm a Bachelor of Social Work student currently in Sudbury, Ontario and originally from Hamilton, Ontario. So my story with uh, HAE, uh, the diagnosis was pretty easy. My dad was already diagnosed by a specialist in Hamilton at Mac. So everyone kind of knew that there was about a 50% chance that I would have it. I remember when I was young, you know, to maybe six or seven was when I had my first flare-up. I remember just pacing the floor and wondering, like, why does my foot feel funny? And I remember my dad taking my sock off, and he saw that my foot was swollen, and that was the very first time I ever saw my dad start crying was when he saw, like, that my foot was swollen and I did have HAE. So then I was taken to the same specialist. I was diagnosed with hereditary angioedema type 1. 
And um, after that, it was pretty stable with about one or two, I guess, swellings or flare-ups a month. Um, in my family, it was pretty much you took it how it was at face value, like it's your blood disorder, you live with it. Um, I don't remember my dad going to the hospital very much if he had a very bad throat swell. And I remember watching my dad and my brother just suffer with it a lot and kind of just deal with it. So as I grew up, I guess fast forward about 15 years when I was in university, um, living on my own in residence hundreds of kilometers away from my family. I was trying to educate people, like my roommates, about it so that they knew about it. And again, I was still the same one or two breakthroughs a month. And then in November 2014 was when things kind of took a downturn for me. So that was kind of a big change. It was either in my hip, my throat, or my stomach. And it was kind of, I just went through the motions, do the same thing that I saw everyone else in my family do, just kind of dealing with it. Um, I look back at it now and I'm like, holy, like, how did I make it through a whole semester of university like that? Um, so then I started reading up a lot on it myself because I didn't really know much about it at all. And I started reading just on various triggers, um, the symptoms kind of surrounding it, and also that treatment. So in August 2015, I hunted down the specialist that my dad had saw. I didn't really see her much after the initial diagnosis when I was younger. So I hunted her down. I found some phone number. I don't even know if it was like her uh, number because she was a professor at McMaster or what, but I just called her up and I said, listen, this is what I'm dealing with. These are all the people in my family that you treat. Like, would you be interested in seeing me? So she called me back right away. She was very, very awesome. Uh, she scheduled an appointment with me. I traveled back down to Hamilton. I saw her twice, I think. And then she got me started on Baronert. So in pretty much the span of three weeks, I went from having no idea to being on a medication and having my quality of life just go from being pretty much absolutely nothing to, like, a normal person, I guess. Um, so that was where I was um, at the beginning of September, just getting used to my baronet, getting my doses, I guess, uh, proper. And now I have maybe one breakthrough a month. One every two months, depending on what I'm doing. So I guess my HAE story was a lot of advocacy, a lot of like advocating for myself, having my specialist advocate for me, and just being able to go from having no quality of life to having a regular life once again. <laughs> and then that's where I am now. Well, thank you, Morgan, for sharing that compelling story. And uh, you just mentioned quality of life. I was wondering if you could elaborate on that in terms of your experience with quality of life and HAE as a young person. Um, I feel like when my breakthroughs weren't that bad, like it wasn't too bad. Like everyone kind of knew what it was. I know I had one friend that would kind of, she'd be like wary every time I was drinking. She'd be like, oh, are you okay? Like, are you going to have a flare-up? What's going on? And I'm like, no, like I'm fine. Um... But then once it started getting bad, it was kind of, I didn't go out much. I didn't really, like, talk to people. And I didn't, like, I kind of got weird looks when I was, because it was always my hip. I was always limping around everywhere. 
but it, I think it, the most it would impact as a young person was I think like was my social life, just from either not being able to do things or just not wanting to do things. I just wanted to sit at home and do nothing, so I was pretty much in too much pain to do anything. And I think, like, I think it's important for people to know that it's possible to leave a nor- like lead a normal life. Like, if you have the right medication and you're not suffering through it. But, like, it is possible. It's just once you kind of get on track. Well, Morgan, it really seems like uh, the right treatment has significantly improved your quality of life. On another note, I would like to ask you what you think the role of advocacy is within rare condition communities such as HAE. I think advocacy anywhere is really important. Like, I'm a social work student, so we talk a lot about advocacy. But when I was able to advocate for myself, it kind of got the message across that I wanted to have put across, not like just medical, like diagnosis. This is what it is. Like I was able to give backstory to it, kind of like I am now. So like just being able to advocate, like I'll tell anyone who listens about HAE and what to do and Like, if I go to a new workplace, I make sure they know about it, and I make sure they know, like, here's my banner that stays on hand here. Here's my medication. I have my medical alert bracelet. Just to kind of, like, I feel the more people that know about it, the more people that donate to the cause or even can spread word around amongst themselves is just really helpful and allows for a better understanding of HAE. Thank you, Morgan, for your perspective on advocacy. Before we let you go, we've been asking other members of the HAE community, what is one word that describes your relationship with HAE? Okay, I already already got my word. So, what is HAE to you? Uh, HAE to me is very isolating. I feel that no one, like, who doesn't have HAE understands the pain associated with it. Um, They don't comprehend the body checking, like you wake up in the morning and you check your whole body, making sure you're not swollen anywhere. Like, I still do it, even though I'm on medication. I also feel like no one understands anxiety over triggers. Like, I know exercise used to be a big trigger for me, and it takes a lot out of me to be able to go and exercise now, thinking, this might trigger me, and I might be swollen tomorrow. So it's just very isolating. Thank you, Morgan, for sharing your unique perspective, and we look forward to hearing from you in the future. Morgan mentioned how access to the right treatment dramatically improved her quality of life. Now let's go back to Dr. LaQuesta for an in-depth description of available treatment options for HAE patients in Canada. Okay, so so for acute treatment, um, there are various options. So one option is um, Firazir, which is a self-injected um, subcutaneous injection, so it goes into the belly. Um, it very easy to use. Um, We can teach patients how to give it themselves, and it's quite effective at treating um, swelling attacks. It does need to be covered under a drug plan, um, so coverage is really important because the drug can be expensive. The other option is C1 inhibitor replacement, which is available to everybody in Canada. It's a blood product, and all blood products are free in Canada. It is an IV medication, so we either have to teach the patient how to do an intravenous um, injection, which is very doable for the majority of patients, or some patients may opt to have this given in a hospital-type setting, so it would mean having to go to the hospital and getting that administered. Um, 
there have been some uses for using fresh frozen plasma as well, um, but its effectiveness has not been as well established as with the C1 inhibitor or Baronert or the um, Acatabant, which is Firazir. Um, and as well, there is theoretical risk that could also make the swelling worse. So as a last resort, when nothing else is available um, in the hospital setting, then FFP is, is the next option. There's another um, older medication called tranexamic acid. It's an oral pill, um, therefore very convenient to use, but clearly its effectiveness is not as well established as the Baronert or the Cirazir. So that's acute um, management for acute attack. For long-term prophylaxis, so patients who have frequent or severe swelling where we're, our approach is more to suppress the swelling from happening in the first place, um, certainly C1 inhibitor is approved for that as well. And again, we would teach patients how to do their own IV infusions anywhere from once a week to twice a week. And some patients at various times in their life may even need it three times a week or even daily, depending on what's going on with them, to try and stop the swelling. Um, again, any potential downside for, for the C1 inhibitor is that it is IV. There is a bit of procedure in learning how to do it. Um, certainly, if you have to go to the hospital to get this done, that's, that's time out of your life. Um, and it is a blood product. So there is theoretical risk of um, infect, viral infection transmissions with getting blood products. Um, are, we're quite vigilant with the uh, blood products that we have here in Canada, but it's always something to consider. Um, Spirazir is not an option for uh, prophylaxis. It's only used in the acute treatment. And other oral options for uh, prophylaxis would be the tranexamic acid again, um, but also one of the older medications called a danazole. Danazole is what we call an androgen. It's a male hormone. Um, and nobody knows exactly what the mechanism is as to how it, it, it affects patients with C1 inhibitor, or I should say what, why it works in patients. Um, there's varying degrees of doses that can be used, but the, the big concern with Danazol are the side effects, both in the short term and the long term. Um, in the short term, because it is a male hormone, you're really looking about masculinizing effects, and this is quite worrisome uh, in females, um, and especially young females. We really don't use it in the young female population whatsoever. So mas masculinizing effects uh, such as hair growth, um, lowering of the voice, um, certainly weight gain, there can be acne, and there also is quite, um, quite mental effects that come with Danazol, both in the male and female uh, population, with depression, aggression, anxiety, and, and none of that is, is desired. And certainly with dealing with the chronic condition itself, this is all the much more worse to add on top of that. Um, the other risks with Danazol is that it can increase your cholesterol levels, um, therefore worry about the increased risk of heart disease and long-term risks on the liver, including um, cancer risks. So, like I said, for some people, Danazol has worked. They get very little side effects, and it really is an ideal drug for them. For others, the side effects are really not tolerable. And, of course, the long-term risks of, of heart disease and cancer is always discerning. Thank you, Dr. LaQuesta, for that overview of available treatment options. Clearly, each treatment method has its own pros and cons, so we must emphasize that there is no one magic bullet option for all HAE patients. 
please be sure to consult your treating physician to find the best solution for you. Finally, we're going to talk to Linda and Ken Howlett, two longtime members of HAE Canada. As a couple, they bring a unique perspective to the table. Linda is a caregiver and Ken is a patient. We discuss the respective quality of life with HAE, both pre- and post-diagnosis, along with what it's like to raise a family with HAE. When I, a month after Ken and I got married, is when he had his, the severest attack that I had seen. We had been together for a few years before, and I had seen sporadic episodes. But about a month after we got married, he had not been diagnosed at this point. Um, he had, a, he was, had an attack from head to toe, basically, other than his throat. I think everything else was swollen. And he was quite ill. We took him, finally, we took him to our GP. To make a long story short, he was diagnosed at that point. They, they put him in hospital, and they managed to diagnose him. Well, Ken, now that we've discussed your diagnosis as an HAE patient, I was wondering if you wanted to share a personal story with uh, HAE, either pre- or post-diagnosis. Probably uh, pre-diagnosis, because after the diagnosis, I mean, it sort of everything changes. I mean, yes, there's still episodes, but at least when you know what the episode is and you have an idea of... Uh, you can do something about it. I mean, it, it interferes with your life, but not in the same way because the uncertainty is not there anymore. But, I mean, I, mean, I know as a kid growing up, I mean, like you say, you know, you, you can't get involved in sports because the day comes where you're out playing hockey and then you can't hold on to a hockey stick because your hand is swollen. You know, you can't play ball because you can't get a glove on so you can, you know, catch. Or your foot's swollen and you can't run. Uh, or your stomach is... Uh, is giving you problems and you know, you're nauseated and uh, you're in severe pain for three, four days. I say one of those things. Like you, you do learn to to live with it. You do learn to deal with it. Uh, you find your own ways to hide it, uh, and you know you find ways to to cope. If 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 your hand is swollen, you learn how to use your other hand uh, to do the things. You know, you, you're no longer right-handed because that doesn't work. So you have to learn how to do things differently, or you're 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 lost. Uh, and over time, I mean, you, your your mind takes over, I guess, and it, it teaches your body different things. So I mean, there's not, I mean, how you develop because of it, I guess, is is different than than, or at least it seems that way. It's different than everybody else. And you do try and hide it away because I mean, the disfigurement, or you know, you don't want people to know. And although that makes no sense, that's, that's just, you know, that's the mind of a kid, I guess. And I like to think, at least, that, that, that my kids didn't go through that sort of, uh, you know, frustration, embarrassment that I had to go through. At least they knew what was going on, and, I mean, I could guide them, I guess. So, I mean, it, uh, it, it certainly helps from that standpoint. When we moved onward and we started to have a family, um, our firstborn was a twin, boy and a girl. He has HAE. She doesn't. He had his first attack just a few days after he was born when he was in the, um, after it, he was in the incubator after an, an emergency surgery. So this is something that I have lived with for, for all of my, you know, all of our, our, our marriage. And our third child also, she has HAE as well. Now we had the children diagnosed at as early as possible at, at birth and, you know, confirmed again later on. Um, we were lucky, luckier than some people today. You know, we, we luckier than Ken would have been because we had our children tested and we knew, you know, what we should look out for. Well, it seems like uh, diagnosis is a reoccurring theme in our conversation. And 
just touching on what you said there, Linda, Ken, I was wondering if you wanted to explain how your life is different now in terms of quality of life post-diagnosis. With the treatments that are available, uh, episodes that I have, if I have them, are, are certainly reduced. I mean, if if you have a minor, a minor episode, uh, you just don't uh, you don't. Uh, well, I I try not to let it interfere with what I'm going to be doing. Uh, like I said, I mean, if I if I can prevent them, which fortunately I'm pretty much able to do most of the time, but I mean, I'm able to you know go to work and uh, yeah, I mean, I can I can get involved in pretty much whatever I want to. Uh, but it's always in the back of your mind. It never leaves. Uh, you know, you have to think of, okay, all right, uh, if I, you know, uh, if I go somewhere, uh, what do I need to take along with me just in case? Because there's always a just in case. It sounds like there's a lot of different things that you're, you're always thinking about as a patient. Uh, Linda, what are, what are some of the things that you think about as a caregiver? Um, there's really three roles as a caregiver. There's, you know, you're the observer, you're the supporter, and you're the advocate. You're constantly like looking, you see something, oh, are you, are you feeling okay? Are you having an attack? So you're looking for triggers that might set off an attack because it's, you know, it's pretty, it's unpredictable. And it can be very frightening as well. Um, and sometimes, you, you know, you feel helpless because we didn't meet any other AGE people that had AGE up until, I think it was 2012 when we went to our first uh, meeting. And we didn't realize that it could be severe. We didn't realize that there was a possibility that, you know, for throat swells, for example. We hadn't experienced that in our family up to that point. So throughout it, as a caregiver, you know, you go from the observer, you also are your supporter because, you know, you're the one who's, who's to comfort them. You're the one who's watching to see what's going to happen. Um, you're trying to help them, especially as small children, understand what they're doing and what they're feeling and, you know, taking them to the hospitals and just reminding them that this isn't going to last. It's going to be okay. Um, you know, there's frustration involved in, in um, you know, trying to get the proper treatment for your for your loved one. And, of course, as a result of that, you become an advocate, or at least in my case, I certainly did. Once I, the fear came into me, when, I said it back in 2012, when I realized that this can be, this can be fatal. You know, this is pretty scary stuff. Well, thank you for that caregiver perspective, Linda. And Ken, I just wanted to turn it over to you and wonder if you had any different relationship with HAE as an HAE patient. You know, I mean, like I've never, I, I've never ever felt that, uh, you know, that that my life was threatened by this. Even though I guess that is a possibility, but uh, I've been, it's been so long and I've never had to deal with that. I, I, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about it. It wasn't until my daughter sort of had some of those episodes that kind of brought that home. You know, well, maybe it could happen, I suppose, but uh, I don't dwell a whole lot on that. Like I said, I just try and prepare for, uh, you know, the next episode. And uh, by doing that, uh, I mean, preparation is key, really. Uh, you can live as normal life as possible. <laughs> Well, it seems like access to the proper treatment has really uh, bettered your quality of life. And just to wrap things up, I wanted to ask you the question, is there anything that you would like to see for the HAE community moving forward? It'd be nice if there were, didn't have to be an HAE community. Well, that uh, there's, there's, there's something could, uh, you know, this could be, I guess, cured as, is you know the, the the word in a way, but uh, I mean, 
I know that's not likely to happen, but I mean that would be you know that's the pipe dream. Uh, but the reality is, is that what needs to be improved in so many ways uh, is diagnosis, uh, identifying the people who have this, uh, identify the genetic mutation, and uh, you know at least the treatment. Hopefully, you can make uh, you know an effective treatment uh, for everybody. Uh, and I mean, it's sort of you know, uh, it's 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 not one size fits all. It's one size fits none. So I mean, there are a number of different things, and uh, what works for some don't necessarily work for others, and and so on down the line. But I mean, if 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 there if there could be something that that uh, that uh, every person who suffers from HAE can 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 find something that works for them, and has that opportunity then to improve their quality of life. But, I mean, the, the biggest the biggest change in quality of life, and I know for me, was diagnosis. Because it's, if you know what you're dealing with, then you have an opportunity to deal with it. For me, from a, my family's perspective, you know, I just would really wish for my family to have safe, productive lives and living with their HAE. Yeah, we have to get away from, uh, you know, the embarrassment and the frustration and everything else, and the reality is, I mean, you know, HAE doesn't mean hide all episodes. Thank you for listening to today's episode of HAE Radio. On this episode, we reached out to members of the Canadian HAE community and asked them, what is HAE to you? Our discussions revolved around the concept of quality of life and how it informs individuals' relationships with the condition, using personal testimony from those affected by HAE. We also heard from an HAE specialist who provided an overview of the disorder and the available treatment options. If you're interested in learning more about HAE Canada or HAE as a condition, please visit our website, haecanada.org. There you can become a member, and membership is free and open to everyone in the HAE community. That is... HAE patients, their family members, friends, caregivers, and also HAE healthcare providers. Once again, membership is free, resources are available from our office, and you can contact us at any time. We look forward to hearing from you. Thank you for listening to this edition of HAE Radio. HAE Radio is a podcast produced by HAE Canada that aims to raise awareness about HAE in Canada by conveying relevant information to our audience. HAE Radio seeks to create a positive environment where listeners can engage with the HAE community on a wide range of topics. HAE Radio is made possible by the support of our sponsors, CSL Bearing, Shire, and BioChrist. We would also like to thank our partner, HAEI, for their continued support. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please email us at haeradio at haecanada.org. This episode was released January 29th, 2016. HAE Radio is an HAE Canada production.